We come now to our last sermon here in the book of Exodus, this uh, series we've been in since January. And where this finds us is Exodus chapter 15, the first song written down in the Bible. The Israelites have been freed from slavery, and they've seen it done in dramatic fashion. God's come through, and he's saved them from the seemingly uh, insurmountable power of the Egyptian army. And so as soon as this happens, they stop. They stop to craft a song and to sing it together, and that's what we have here in Exodus 15. So let's read this together. God's word, good, beautiful, and true. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord. For he is highly exalted, both horse and driver he is hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger, and it consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue. I will overtake them. I will divide the spoils. I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you, you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretch out your right hand and the earth swallows your enemies. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The rulers of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them. By the power of your arm, they will be still stone until your people pass by, Lord, until the people you bought pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. The Lord reigns forever and ever. When Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them, and the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam, the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel in her hand. And all the women followed her with timbrels and dancing. Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver, he is hurled into the sea. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in it we catch a glimpse of who you are and what you're about. And so we get a picture of who we are in you and all the riches of your grace in Christ Jesus. So I pray in these moments as we reflect upon your word here in Exodus 15 that you would enlighten our hearts. Open the eyes of our hearts to see the glory of Jesus and cause us to love him all the more. We pray this in his name. The history of music is as old as human civilization itself. Archaeologists have dug through ancient civilizations and pretty much as soon as human civilization starts, they find musical instruments. It's part and parcel of what it is to be a human being. Um, and it's transcultural. It's not just music comes from this part of the world and spilled out. Like every culture has their own expression of music. And I think it's 
it's, it's, so it's something that is this expression through sound is basic to what it means to be a human being. We long to communicate this way, to sing and to be heard, to speak and be listened to, to be known. But this is more, I think, than just a desire for self-expression, but that would be a good enough reason to sing. I think it's because music, because song has a particularly powerful, it's a powerful way to praise. In song, we begin to stretch beyond the boundaries of language, which we know when we sing a song. There's words in songs that we sing, but there's something about us not just saying them and repeating them. There's something about singing them that draws something else out from within us. And it, uh, it stretches the boundaries of what just repeating language can do. I know this sounds weird. I'm, I'm grabbing at words here, but I'm just saying music's important, <laughs> and it always has been. Well, here in Exodus 15, we find the very first song written down in the entire Bible. Now, it's not the first time singing has happened. We learn in Genesis 3, way back at the beginning, the development of human civilization. Almost right away, they're making stringed instruments. They're making brass instruments. It speaks about that. And we've read in the Bible so far about people singing. So this isn't the first time people sung. But this is the first time that someone in the community of God's people stopped. And inspired by God to write it down, said, it is, not, it is important that we not just say we sing, but we, uh, but we record what we sing. This is the first time. And what a song it is. Sadly, we don't know much about how it sounded. That's why I didn't sing it this morning. I mean, um, we have no idea. <laughs> they didn't pass down a musical notation. It probably would have sounded strange to our you know, 21st century American ears anyway. Um, but it's a song we'll hear one day, and we'll sing one day as well. We'll get to that in a minute. But the words of this song, which is what we'll focus on this morning, tell us something important. That God, in freeing his people from Egyptian slavery, has revealed something about himself that maybe wasn't clear before. That God is a warrior. God is a warrior. Some translations, I think King James Version says, God is a man of war, is the way they translated this. But he isn't just a warrior. He's a different kind of warrior. We think warrior, we think someone coming in and stomping on someone physically to take them over and, and plunder their stuff, to demonstrate power, to you know, prove themselves. But God shows himself as a warrior that works for salvation and freedom. A warrior that is set on prying his children from all that holds them bound and bringing them to himself. So we'll talk about that a little bit more as we look at this. I'm going to break it up into a couple of different sections. And the first one's this. Our strength and our song. God, our strength. God, our song. Now our passage begins by telling us who is singing. It's not just Moses, though sometimes this is called the song of Moses. It's Moses and the people. Something dramatic just happened. They've stopped to compose this song and sing it together. And from the very beginning, the song emphasizes that this is a community song. It's not just a private song. It's not just my song. This is a community song for the whole of God's people. In fact, think of this as the people are coming out of slavery. God's about to give them his instruction and his law. He's about to bring them to the promised land. And so this song is like their national anthem. They're getting it at the beginning. This is going to be their national anthem. And in fact, throughout the history of worship in the Jewish people, this song played a huge part. They sang it every week. In fact, in worship in the synagogue before the time of Jesus. So this was like a new national anthem for them to sing. 
And the song begins with praise, verse 1. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. This phrase, highly exalted, is a picture of God rising up. In fact, the same word, exalted, is, is a word used to describe waters rising. And the, you know, flood waters of a river or, or plants growing up from the ground. The idea is that God has shown himself in this action in a way that has lifted him higher to be seen in a certain way. And how has he done this? Says both horse and driver. He's hurled into the sea. The Israelites have just seen the justice of God descend upon the army of Egypt. And when we see this, like we might recoil, of course, because we're talking loss of life. We're talking armies in the sea. But these were not innocent folks pursuing the Israelites. This was the army of this incredibly oppressive and unjust society that squashed these people for 400 years. That are now trying to go and get them back. To re-enslave them. This was an army of wickedness chasing after them. And we read about that in Exodus 14 last week. But in the face of its impossible circumstance. In the face of the most powerful army. The most powerful empire the world had ever known. At that point, what has God done? God has shown up. And the impressive military strength of Egypt has been tossed into the sea. Tossed into the sea. But why the sea? Why the sea? I don't know if you've ever thought of this. Why didn't God just choose a different way to deal with this pursuing army? Why the sea? Why the water? Why that? Well, in the ancient world, this is one of the reasons. The sea was seen as this power that humanity was unable to tame or control. The sea was something humanity couldn't get its hands around. The sea was out of control. And in fact, it came to stand for... Everything that was dark and turbulent, chaos, was the sea. It was a symbol of death, the sea. And the ancient imagination eventually became to be filled with these characters. They started naming the sea, kind of like we say uh, Mother Nature. They named the sea Leviathan, which that's a really cool name. Uh, Leviathan, Yom, Mot, Tan, and Rahab. All these were like, they were pictured as, uh, as, as sea monsters, in fact. But it was the imagination of the ancient people. We're terrified of the sea. We can't control it. We can't get our hands around it. There must be sea monsters that inhabit this world. And so if you read through the Old Testament with this in the background, this is often informing some of the things that are written. In fact, some of the Psalms, they describe God as literally fighting sea creatures. Not because God literally fought sea creatures. We shouldn't have a picture of God descending from heaven and like, Slashing up a, a giant squid or something like that. That's not what it's getting at. But what the writers were playing on was this idea. God can wrestle with and defeat and control the things that we cannot. The most chaotic thing that can be imagined can be overcome by the exalted and the true God. God can take that darkness, that turbulence that the sea uh, represented. And he can mold it to his purposes as hard as that is to believe. And so the song describes God's victory over this Egyptian army at the sea as him splitting the waters. And how does he do it? Verse 8, he blasts his nostrils. Verse 10, he breathes out. Verse 12, he stretches out his arm. The song calls God a warrior, but the weapons of his warfare are breathing <laughs> and stretching. The idea here is that God is transcendent in power. His control of the sea and his defeat of the Egyptian army, it's not something that cost him. He didn't have to move. He just breathed. And that's what led them to sing in verse 2, The Lord is what? My strength 
and my song. You may have a translation that says, The Lord is my strength and my defense. The Lord is my strength and my song. For Moses and the people, God's display of strength, it's an open door. God has just displayed His strength. He has shown Himself as a warrior, but because of that, what? This strength is our strength because it's our God. So His strength is our strength. He's become my strength. He's become my song. God's strength is one that is shown on behalf of His people. And it's the reason why we would even imagine we would be strong. Not because we aren't weak. We're incredibly weak. But our confidence is not that our strength, our personal strength will hold on. And we'll be strong people that will make it. No, our confidence is that the strength of God never runs out. And we're joined to Him by faith. So His strength is our strength. And for that reason, God is my song. Notice it doesn't say God is the theme of my song. It says God is the song, and this is what it means. God isn't just something to sing about. He's our song. He's the one who gives us rhythm to move. He fills our mouths to sing. He fills our hearts with inspiration. And that's good news. Because even if we can't sing, if we can't sing well, if we can't carry a tune in the bucket, that's fine. The point isn't that we can craft a song where God's the theme. The, the, the point is He is the song. He doesn't need us to create a song to complete His praise as if it would be imperfect. No, He is our song. Interestingly enough, the word song has the same root as the, the word for strength or defense. Which is why some translations say, God has become my strength and my defense. The word has the same root. The meaning is it's something produced from vitality, that, that, that the song is, is, is a shield or it's a protection. In fact, if you go back, if you go find an ancient Hebrew um, Bible, and you go to the book of Exodus in this ancient Hebrew Bible, you'll see that pretty early on, the scribes, the people who were tasked with literally handwriting Bibles, when they would get to Exodus 15, they would structure it to be like bricks interlocking. And so one line would have you know, the words here for the sentence. The next line would have the, the spots between the words on the top line filled in with words. It was meant to look like a brick wall being built up. And the idea was that this song that is sung here, it's our shield, it's our protection. The God who is spoken about here, the God who is sung about, He is our strength. He's shown himself as a warrior for his people. He is our confidence and he is our shield. That brings me to my next section, memory and hope. So this song, if you read through it, you'll notice there's lots of past tense. They're looking backwards. They're remembering. They're looking back at what has just happened. They're stopping to commemorate this in a song as a way to remember. Now you may know when you're a kid, like you're learning your ABCs, one of the best ways to be able to remember something and have it move from your short-term to your long-term memory is to sing it. It's why we sing when we're trying to memorize stuff. Because there's something about singing it that like, it makes the brain connections that just saying it or reading, it, it doesn't have the same power. Songs stick. And the looking back that begins here, this looking back, this motion of memory, it became embedded in the imagination of God's people forever, even down to the day, today. So, so much of our identity is bound up in remembering. We remember how God has moved, the things that He's done. We remember what God has said. That's what we're doing when we pull the Bible out and read words. We are remembering. We are remembering. 
And we're remembering because this is part of our family history. We're remembering that God makes promises and He keeps those promises. And we keep speaking about how He's acting because it forms our present and it sets the trajectory for our future. God is faithful to His promises. Now this idea of faithfulness, it's embedded in this. Uh, they translated it in the NIV as God's... You would think I had marked that name. Unfailing love, verse 13. Unfailing love. If you ever read through the Old Testament and you see unfailing love or covenant love or steadfast love or God's loving kindness, those are all one word. And I'm about to teach you a fun Hebrew word. It starts with that. Chesed. You can just say chesed. It's fine. Everybody knows what you Chesed. That, that's, how you, that's how you say it. But that is a word that means God's covenant love. It's one of the most repeated words in the Old Testament. It's key to understanding who God is. And what it is, is God is faithful. God is faithful. He has a covenant love. He makes promises and He comes through. Now we mostly understand, sadly enough, God's covenant love, His unfailing love. Because we have a contrast in human love, or human hate, even, that falls apart. The faithfulness of God is understood in contrast to the unfaithfulness of human beings. Or the inability of human leaders like Pharaoh and their wickedness to deliver on what they promise. In fact, that's what this song does. It speaks about Pharaoh as a way to contrast the emptiness of his words... With the true power of God. Look at verse 9. Pharaoh starts to, uh, to boast. We get examples of how he boasted. What does he say? He's going to overtake the Israelites. I'm going to divide the spoils. I'm going to destroy them. What all this is, is Pharaoh making promises in a sense he can't keep. He spoke and said this and he can't come through. The hate of Pharaoh cannot cash the checks he writes. But not God. God doesn't speak and it's empty. God has hesed. He has covenant love that he acts on. He has a love that binds him to the good of his people. Not because he has to, but because that is his sovereign choice. With his power, unmatched power in the universe, he's going to put that power to work for his people. He's going to make promises. And in his covenant love, he's going to come through on those promises. And that's what we remember when we read. That's what we remember when we come together and we look at Scripture. That God makes promises and He comes through on promises. Now this song doesn't just have a past focus. It has a past tense, but it's not just memory. The past of God's faithfulness, it forms their present and it sets the trajectory for their future. Why? Because He has been faithful. He's become our strength in song. And He will continue to be faithful. God's purposes are not just complete in Him saving the Israelites from the Egyptian army. His purpose isn't just to create a new nation and He'll bring them their land and they'll live happily ever after. What God is up to is what He promised way back in Genesis 3. After the failure of Adam and Eve, the first words that, that God said to them was that there will be a descendant of this woman, Eve, who will destroy this earth. Who will destroy the power of sin. Right there in the face of human rebellion is the first thing God says. And this is Him beginning to come through on that. 
This is God keeping that promise that sin will not have the final word. And so he's bringing the Israelites out to form them into a nation, not just to give them their own happily ever after. His purpose is in Israel and bringing them into a promised land is kind of like setting up a headquarters. He's like setting a beachhead right there in Israel. And this is going to be the beginning point, the headquarters from him continuing his work to renew his earth, to pry it back from the claims of Satan. He's going to make his home here. It talks about his holy dwelling, the place he's made for his habitation. The idea is this, is Israel is just the beginning of God coming through on this creation purpose of dwelling with his people. And that's how we learn that the bricks that are building this song, it's not building a wall to keep people out. It's building a home for people to abide in. This song is a place that builds up this this inspiration of faith to remember and to hope that God will come through, not on just uh, doing something to an Egyptian army that's pursuing, but on the very uh, forest reaches of how sin has warped his creation. In verse 14, it begins to list a number of different nations that Israel was going to face. They had just been freed from Egypt, and it starts to list Philistia, Edom, Moab, Canaan. The reason they're listed here is to breed a sense of hope. Because the Israelites weren't an army, at least not in the traditional sense. They didn't have arms at this point. They're literally standing by the river or the sea at this moment, wondering what to do next, wondering where God was going to lead them next. But the listing of these people, they could be looking forward and say, I've heard how strong Philistia is. We've heard how strong Moab is and Edom. We've heard how strong Canaan is. How is this going to go? How is this going to go? This song tells them that their hope isn't in the strength of their arms. Their hope is in the steadfast love, the Hesed of God. To say this all slightly different, the Hesed of God is the ground of why God has worked in the past, why we are held and kept in the present, and why we can be confident in the future. It's His covenant love that will accomplish His purposes. He will make all things new, not us. All that is sad will come untrue. All that is crooked will be made straight. All that is injured will be healed. No injustice will go undealt with. And not one single bit of His grace for us will be held back. And our confidence isn't that we can reach out and grab it. It's that He will bring it to us. That brings me to my last section. Go ahead and see. Our passage closes with an interesting thing happening. It's a character we have not seen since Exodus 2. Way back earlier in the story. Somebody we have not seen pop up since Exodus 2. And that's the sister of Moses, Miriam. Now the last time we've seen her, she was a little girl. A little girl in Exodus 2. And she watched from a distance as God rescued her baby brother Moses from certain death out of the Nile River. You remember, in desperation, Moses' mother had crafted a basket that was really a, a casket. And there was a mandate from Pharaoh that all Hebrew boys must be thrown into the Nile River. What a wicked thing. And it says that she could no longer keep the baby quiet, which if you've been around a baby, yeah. <laughs> and who knows, maybe she was going to be forced to go back to work. Whatever it was, she crafted this basket and set her baby among the reeds. And his older sister, who probably was no more than nine or ten, from a distance watches 
And she sees God rescue her baby brother from certain death in the Nile River. And here, right here, think of this. She's in her late 80s. She's standing at a shore yet again. And she has seen God do it again. Pull life from certain death. Except now it's not just her baby brother. She's a woman in her late 80s. And she's watched God free her people. And so what does she do? I think the most natural thing in the world. She picks up a tambourine and she leads people in singing. She leads the women in repeating the first words of the song. What a powerful moment. What a powerful moment. And I think it's included for us here for a couple of reasons. The first one's this. To show us that there's no inherent competition between Miriam and Moses. Miriam was a strong leader. We know that from where the story goes. She had a very prominent place in, in, in Israel. He calls her a prophet here. She was a speaker of truth. But right here, as she sings, we don't see Moses freaking out to stop her. You stop singing. This is my song that I was leading the people in. He, Moses does not feel a sense of competition. He is not threatened by her place here. He's not threatened by her gifts. They don't need to wrestle the spotlight from each other. Now, they had conflict later on, if you keep reading the story, and that's dealt with. But here, in Exodus 15, we see them both leading in different ways, both praising God. And again, Moses is not threatened by her gifts. The second reason I think we see it mentioned here at the end of this song is because I think this song was one that was meant to be repeated, and it's modeled for us right here. As soon as they get done singing, Miriam's like, run it back. <laughs> It's, it's like when you fall in love with one song, you listen to it for 15 times in a row until you're sick of it. Um, Miriam's like, we got to sing it again. Um, but it's made to be sung again. It's a song that's meant to be repeated. And if you don't believe me, I want to fast forward. The very first words of our call to worship from Revelation chapter 15. And if you look at Revelation chapter 15, it shows a multitude of God's people who have found salvation through Jesus... And they are singing, quote, the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. The Apostle John sees this vision of the victorious people of God. And what are they singing? This song. Not just this song. But they're singing this song. And the words of Revelation 15, it only has a handful of verses quoted, but the ideas are pulled straight from here. They're filled out because there's a greater clarity in Jesus as to what God is doing. But John says they're singing the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Part of that song in Revelation 15 is pulled straight from Exodus 15. Meaning that this song is a song for us. Maybe one we should start singing. Maybe I should like, set this to music. I don't know of a good rendition of it. Um, maybe it wouldn't carry over in English. I don't know. Uh, and no, no, we aren't standing on the shore of the Red Sea in the aftermath of what has happened. We're not. We are so many thousand years removed from this and thousands upon thousands of miles. But we are those who have seen in even clearer ways what the Israelites were only beginning to sing about here. Because we've seen the culmination of God's promises. We've seen the hesed of God in a clearer way, embodied in Jesus Christ. Jesus who didn't split the Red Sea, but in his life. Think about the number of times Jesus does something near the sea. When he calms the sea by his word. When he literally tramples on the sea by walking on water. 
the darkness and the chaotic waters. It could not be honed. Jesus, who is making all things new, to the point that Revelation 21, the last chapter in the Bible, paints a picture of a world where God dwells with his people in perfect peace, the effects of sin are undone, and, quote, there is no longer any sea. Now, I love the beach. I hope there's beach. I hope there's sea in the new heavens and new earth. I don't think that's what it's saying. I think it is a very powerful, symbolic way of saying the culmination of God's purposes will be a place where there is no chaos. There is no disorder. He will dwell with us. We are those who God has taken our sin. And in the words of Micah 7, 19, God has taken our sin and he has tossed them into the sea. Never to rise up again. Never to claim any condemnation on us again. We aren't those who walk through the Red Sea on dry land, at least not literally. But we are those who have been sprinkled clean in the waters of baptism. We are those who have been forgiven and cleansed by God. The God who shows himself as a warrior here and who in Jesus showed himself as a warrior in a different way. Because when Jesus comes, he comes as a warrior. One who fights against all that truly holds us bound. He overcomes all the enemies of our soul. He guts sin and death of its power. He faces the power of sin, not simply by the breath of his nostrils and not costing him, but Jesus comes and as one of us, wears our sin, he wears our suffering, he takes our grief, so that the pain of death and the just wrath of God is satisfied. And he opens a pathway for us to know that all that remains for us is has, all that remains for us is the covenant love of God. Now I don't know everything that you've been through. I don't know the sins you've committed, and that's okay. I don't know all the sins committed against you. I don't know all your trauma. I don't know all your wounds. I don't know all the struggles you're facing even now. And I certainly don't know what you're going to face in the future. I have no idea what it's going to look like. But here's what I do know. Your strength and your song, your hope and confidence is the steadfast love of our Lord. And so as we look ahead when the way is difficult, look to the Lord Jesus Christ and see the depth. Not of the chaotic waters, but the depth of God's love for you. And go ahead and sing. Because here's the truth. The covenant love of God for you is the only inevitable thing in your future. Let's pray. Father, we are those who have come to you, have come to know you through Christ. So I pray as we reflect on how you have shown yourself as a warrior, not who fights like the world does, but one who fights for freedom and salvation for your people. I pray in all this that you will become our strength and our song because you are our salvation. It's in no one else. Teach us this and cause us to look to you and to call upon you and press this all in our hearts. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.